Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. This week, AJC summoned global experts on anti-Semitism to meet with the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief. Among those experts was Katarina von Schnurbein, the European Commission Coordinator on Combating Anti-Semitism, and the woman behind the European Union's first strategy on combating anti-Semitism and fostering Jewish life. Katarina is with us now to discuss the European government's efforts to lead by example and eradicate anti-Semitism. Katarina, welcome. Thank you very much, Mania. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I will start with a more personal question before we start talking about the strategy. What prompted the creation of your position and what led you to take it on? So basically, we had seen, I think, throughout the 2000s, and in fact, AJC was one of the leading organizations that had warned European leaders of rising anti-Semitism, and we saw lethal attacks in some countries coming from right-wing extremism and from Islamist side. And in 2015, in January, Islamists attacked the Charlie Hebdo magazine in Paris and a kosher supermarket and several other lethal attacks that took place in that year and shortly before and after. And I believe that this was a situation and a clear sign that threats against Jews are threats towards society at large, towards our values, such as, for example, media freedom, freedom of speech, democracy. And the European Commission rather quickly then decided to have a coordinator on combating anti-Semitism and fostering Jewish life, by the way, together with a coordinator on combating anti-Muslim hatred, because we saw that rise as well following these attacks, as many people were generalizing their feelings towards the Islamists and their opposition, right opposition towards Islamists, towards Muslim population at large. So it sounds like you're saying that anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim hatred is a side effect or rather a symptom of greater dangers facing democracy. In other words, anti-Semitism is not just harmful to Jews, it's harmful to other people as well, yes? That is absolutely true, but I think we have to be aware that anti-Semitism is the oldest hatred. And therefore, I think we have to recognize that whenever in the past, in particular, in now looking at a European perspective, Jews felt unsafe in Europe, it was always bad for Europe whether we were already in a democracy or not, you know, but I think this is important. This aspect is important. Anti-Semitism targets Jews first, but the effects it has on society at large are dangerous for all of us. You talked about the far-right sources of anti-Semitism and also Islamist extremism there in Europe. Have other sources developed, such as from the far left or from other directions? Are there other sources of anti-Semitism? Yes, indeed. I mean, for the European Commission, we've been very clear that any form of anti-Semitism is regarded as equally pernicious. Anti-Semitism has mutated over time. We saw Christian anti-Semitism, racist anti-Semitism, conspiracy myths, all of them resurface in different forms. And particular, for example, conspiracy myths now during COVID have seen horrific revival. 
And following the Holocaust, when you would have thought that anti-Semitism should have been brought to an end, we have seen and see now Holocaust denial and distortion. And after the creation of the State of Israel, Israel-related anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism, and anti-Semitism that hides behind anti-Zionism. Yeah? So I think it's important to recognize that these forms of anti-Semitism come from, as you already mentioned, far-right Islamist side. They can come from within the Christian faith as well, and also from the far-left. And we need to address all of those forms and all of those sources. So the EU strategy on combating anti-Semitism and fostering Jewish life, it's actually three-pronged. I've, I just mentioned two of them, combating anti-Semitism, fostering Jewish life. But the third prong is Holocaust education and remembrance. And you just talked about the rise of Holocaust distortion and denial. You would have thought that the Holocaust itself would have put anti-Semitism to an end. So I want to start with that third prong in terms of breaking the strategy down. What are the deficiencies in Europe when it comes to Holocaust remembrance and education? How does this strategy strengthen that? So the challenges have been that over the past years, we have, I believe, seen increasing doubt of or distortion of the Holocaust in the public sphere through the internet. And many young people in particular not necessarily even recognize this distortion. This has to do with the fact that although in most EU countries the Holocaust is taught in the schools at some point, it is often taught out of context. You don't learn much about Jewish life that happened through the centuries. Then suddenly the Holocaust comes up and then it you know, ends in 1945. And I think this is a very important. This is one area where we want to work with the member states who are responsible for the curricula to not only ensure that students learn about the richness of Jewish life in Europe, but also that teachers are capable of teaching it. And then that, of course, also is a question of the wider society in our integration measures. This needs to be raised as well. And I believe in general, Holocaust remembrance will change in the next decade. This strategy is laid out for nine years. As we see as we have less and less survivors with us, but also as society is much more multifaceted, much more diverse. There are many members of our European society who have no links, no family links directly with the time when the Holocaust happened in Europe. And so it's important to show how this relates in its universality to our values today in Europe, to the creation of the European Union, and the need to remember the victims in order not to forget. Well, I'm curious, do you believe that anti-Semitism, because of Holocaust remembrance, is it treated as more of a relic of the past instead of a contemporary problem? Yes, this can be a challenge, but I think it's important, therefore, to show that it was anti-Semitism that led to the Holocaust. Yeah, so the Holocaust didn't fall from the sky. It really, I mean, we, we have seen pogroms in many countries, in Russia, in Poland, in Germany, in many other EU countries. We've seen Jews expelled in the 15th century from Spain and Portugal. This has happened everywhere in different forms and different manners throughout the centuries. And I think it's really important to understand that there is an age-old 
idea to this that then comes up in different forms again today. And I mentioned the corona pandemic. In fact, we did a study that came out in June this year where we compared January, February 2020 and January, February 2021 as to anti-Semitic content in German and French language on Twitter, Facebook, and Telegram. And we saw a seven-fold increase in French language and a 13-fold increase in German language. So that's mainly conspiracy myths around COVID in connection with anti-Semitism. And I think this is the difficult part and the dangerous part, the speed in which nowadays, due to online measures and online possibilities, these anti-Semitic ideas can reach our living room. Yes. Okay, so let's go to the second prong of the strategy. What does it mean to foster Jewish life? And what does that have to do with your role of combating anti-Semitism? So I believe that fostering Jewish life is the other side of anti-Semitism. So we need to fight against, but I think we also need to fight for and to support the Jewish community and the diversity among the Jewish communities in order to just work towards normalcy for Jews in Europe. I know to an American audience, this might sound a bit strange, but because of the Shoah, we have very small Jewish communities in most EU countries, which means usually they are not very visible in public life. It's not so easy for them. And then, plus, we have the security measures that are unfortunately necessary at the moment, which means it's not so accessible either. And therefore, we believe also as an institution, as European Commission, that it is our duty to support the Jewish communities with projects, for example, also intercultural projects, but also with regards to their own traditions and uh, the way they want to bring them into the public. We have one specific action in this strand that I like very much. Europe has developed a biodiversity strategy in which we want to plant 3 billion trees by the end of 2030. And this, of course, links very much to the Jewish tradition of planting trees on Tubishvat. And so we have made this link as part of the strategy to make sure that we can connect this tradition with today's attempts to you know, save our planet and work towards a healthier environment. So you know, it's also these kind of small things that can show the richness of Jewish traditions. I like that you pointed out that particular action as one of your favorites. What are some of the other highlights of this strategy? We want to create a research hub in Europe on anti-Semitism and Jewish life. First of all, bringing these two together, I think usually they are researched quite separately. Also in Europe, there is not so much synergy at the moment between different chairs and countries has to do also with the fact that it takes place in so many languages. That is a long-term project. We have a similar hub for Holocaust remembrance that the European Commission has financed with 25 million euro. We've developed this since 2010, and we want to do something similar now. With regards to Holocaust remembrance, I think one aspect is important to show how local the Holocaust was, that it happened really in our immediate environment by showing, for example, houses where Jews were hidden or deportation sites, train stations, marking those with an educational 
possibility, it could be a QR code, can be a certain plaque or whatever, to show to the local population, actually, you know, there was something going on back then. And raising also questions about, you know, we have a choice and what were the choices? So I think this has direct relevance also to strengthening civil courage and linking different qualities that we want to see also, among other, in our young people. The strategy talks about ending anti-Semitism. Really? I mean, is that realistic? Can it be ended? You know, 15 years ago, when I started to work for the European Commission as spokesperson for a commissioner who was responsible for employment, he always talked of zero unemployment. And I once asked him, you know, why do we always talk about zero unemployment? We all know it's not realistic. And he said, yes, but you have to have high goals because otherwise you're never going to go anywhere. And I think this is exactly the case here. Our ultimate goal is to not have any anti-Semitism. I mean, is this not what we want? Yes, you know, we know it's been there for 2000 years. We know it's not going to end overnight. It will need a lot of action and a lot of political will and so on to really end it. But if we do not aim for it, well, then we will stop halfway. And so I think it's really important to have this very high goal that might seem a bit unrealistic. I was, by the way, at a conference that had exactly that title, an end to anti-Semitism. And then they discussed whether it should be a question mark or an exclamation mark. And in the end, it was an exclamation mark. And I think it was the right choice there. A symbol of the determination to really eradicate it. So you were quite recently part of a consultation to advise Ahmed Shahid, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Religion or Belief, a consultation to advise him on combating anti-Semitism or the incidence of anti-Semitism in your region. And this was convened by AJC's Jacob Blaustein Institute for the Advancement of Human Rights. I'm just curious, what did you share with Dr. Shahid and your counterparts who were also part of this consultation? Well, what I shared with him as we have been in touch, in fact, over the past years, and in particular already, actually, I was part of the Jacob Blaustein consultation that took place before he wrote his first report on anti-Semitism to show that, you know, there has been some progress on European level and also on this level of the EU governments, the member states' governments. I believe with regards to recognizing anti-Semitism, the so-called IRA definition, the definition of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance is widely recognized now as the benchmark. Our own strategy at the EU level is built on that definition. We see a lot of action with regards to addressing anti-Semitism online and also ensuring Holocaust remembrance, revising curricula. You know, there is a lot ongoing on all different levels. We see cities more active, universities and, you know, civil society in a wider sense. What is lacking still is that the Jewish communities, you know, the local Jewish communities that are not necessarily connected to any institutions uh, from the side of the state or so, feel a difference. And I think this will be a big challenge now in the next decade to make sure that there is tangible change for the Jewish communities across Europe and that they will perceive the action that is taken on state level as 
creating a better environment for them, a safer environment, a perceived safer environment as well, not just the de facto, because sometimes there is also a difference in the perception. But it's really important, I believe, that Jews here see a future for them and for their grandchildren in Europe to ensure that there is safety and a perspective. You mentioned it is up to member states to adopt this strategy. The EU adopted it, yes, but it's really up to the member states, right, to to put it into action. Well, I think there are two levels. There is the European level where we can act ourselves because we have the competence. Online hatred is one of them. Legislation on hate speech is another. But member states have, with regards to security and in particular also education, the responsibilities to act. And has anyone made progress toward doing so or resisted even doing so? We had in 2018, by unanimity, by all 27 EU member states, or then still 28 with the UK, a declaration that already said we want to fight anti-Semitism, among other, by adopting national strategies on combating anti-Semitism, by adopting the IRA definition, by ensuring security, education, and many other things. And we have seen so far only three EU member states to adopt specific strategies on combating anti-Semitism. So that is one aspect where we have now put a date for member states. And we want by the end of 2022, we want to see all member states have either specific strategies or include specific actions in wider strategies against racism. And this is, for example, one thing where the EU has leverage and we will use it. Which are the three member states? Romania, Austria and Estonia have adopted specific strategies. And my last question, which is particularly relevant to our audience, do you look across the pond and see the same patterns playing out in the United States that have played out there in Europe when it comes to anti-Semitism? In talking to the Jewish community in the U.S., they feel also that there is a certain rise and more explicit expression of anti-Semitism that uh, has not been there in the past, that with the attacks on the synagogues in Pittsburgh and Poway, things have changed also in the perception of security to some extent. So this certainly reminds me of a situation also in Europe. But I think it's also important to recognize that the Jewish community in the US is the largest after Israel. So, you know, there is a different understanding also of their role. And one thing I have always admired looking to the US is that there is a certain civil society engagement when anti-Semitic incidents happen, civil society stands up and says, enough is enough. And I think that's something that we can also learn in Europe to ensure that as civil society, we stand up against any form of hatred. We stand up against anti-Semitism to show this solidarity and to support the Jewish community. Well, Katarina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the strategy and thank you for joining us to discuss it. We look forward to seeing it implemented across Europe in the years to come. Thank you very much. It's been really a pleasure to talk to you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And with me this week is Shira Lowenberg, director of AJC's Asia Pacific Institute. 
I invited Shira today because I wanted to celebrate and discuss the return home of journalist Danny Fenster. For those who haven't followed this story, Danny has been in prison in Myanmar since May, arrested in the airport on his way home to see his family. He is an intrepid journalist, a grandson of Holocaust survivors, and therefore a member of a family that does not give up. And watching his brother and his parents lead the fight to get him home safely really has been incredibly moving to watch. Shira, you were with us back in March to talk about the challenges in Myanmar, and you talked about protesters and journalists being detained, and then lo and behold, Danny was arrested. What did the regime have to gain by arresting an American journalist? I mean, what are you hearing about the situation there? Well, certainly the fact that Danny was finally released after almost six months of advocacy here in the United States and internationally to get him released is amazing and welcome news. And we're really, really delighted. What I do have to point out and what I think that Danny himself pointed out is that there are still hundreds of people who are thousands, actually, of people who are still detained in Myanmar, including... I believe the number is about 126 journalists who have been detained, 47 are still imprisoned. As far as the situation there, the violence there continues. The military junta is still in charge and does not appear to be letting up. And from everything that I read and hear, there's not much cause for optimism, at least in the short term, of the situation getting any easier or better for the citizens of Myanmar. So are they headed to civil war? That seems to be the direction that the country is going in. There is regular fighting. There has been fighting between the military and various ethnic groups and militias in parts of Burma or Myanmar for decades. That has continued, and some of the opposition to the military has joined forces with various ethnic groups. From what I understand, the military is not easing up. And the fear is that it will lead to an all-out civil war, which is just a horrendous thing for the people. The community in Myanmar is particularly young. Is that why some of this unrest continues? There have been, over the decades, various uprisings. There was one significant one in 2008. And then, you know, more recently with the movement towards democracy, younger people got a taste of what democracy and freedoms could look like. And the younger generation is not willing to turn the clock backwards. They're not going to give up. And unfortunately, neither is the military. Danny did speak of his time in prison there when he returned to the United States. And he spoke of doctors and teachers and aid workers there in prison. He spoke of those who were left behind. And what can the international community do about what's happening there? Well, as an advocacy organization, and certainly with our members who are eager to do something and act in the face of injustice, I do think that it's very important for Americans to speak with our elected officials, to convey to government officials that we do want something done. And the international community, in in its way also, can exert pressure or at least do things that are symbolic in terms of opposing the military junta and the takeover of Myanmar. The U.S. has put sanctions on Myanmar. Recently, ASEAN did not invite representatives of the military regime to represent Myanmar at their meeting. Those are important symbolically. 
how much actual impact that has on the decision-making of the junta remains to be seen. So sanctions and the public shaming seem to not have as much impact as we might like to see. Nonetheless, that is what we can do. And I think that it's important to send that message that the U.S. and the international community is not turning a blind eye to what is happening to the people there. You know, I want to go back and ask again, why an American journalist when there is, as you say, so much at stake here, when when there are reasons for this regime to be in power, why did they target an American journalist? I think that it was deliberate that it was an American journalist. America is a superpower. There had been advocacy here to gain his release. There had been some international attention to getting his release. He is a journalist, so he is a stand-in for the 47 other still-imprisoned journalists, most of whom maybe with the exception of one, are local journalists. So the message is, if we can do this to an international journalist, think of what we can do for you. And it really scares people off from journalism. There is no freedom of information in Myanmar. This is what can happen to you if you try. Well, I am deeply grateful to Governor Bill Richardson, uh, who negotiated Danny's release. I mean, regardless of politics, as a diplomat, I believe that man is a miracle worker. About 10 years ago, probably more, he stepped in to free another journalist, a Chicago Tribune colleague of mine who I deeply respect, Paul Salopek. He had been imprisoned in Sudan for crossing into Darfur with his translator. And it was a scary, scary time for all of us who knew Paul. And we were so grateful when Governor Richardson was able to negotiate his release. And for the last seven years, Paul has been on a 24,000-mile trek tracing the path of human ancestry from Africa. It's a storytelling journey called Out of Eden, and I highly recommend it, Shira. And for any of you listeners out there, if you're not yet familiar, by sheer coincidence, the pandemic halted Paul's trek in Myanmar, and he has been there for the last 20 months and his dispatches have been fantastic. He profiled one of the last master cartwrights in northern Myanmar. He photographed one of his walking partners who launched a rice distribution campaign there for vulnerable families who couldn't farm because of the military junta and the pandemic. He's been able to just post these snapshots on Instagram and social media that really shed light on the darkness there. It's really journalism at its finest, as Paul's always has been. And it's just fantastic truth-telling. It's what Danny was doing when he was imprisoned, trying to tell the truth. And when that is treated as a punishable crime, that's a problem for everyone, not just journalists, but absolutely everyone. Absolutely, Manya. I agree with you 100%. And I think that the focus here, again, with the celebration of welcoming Danny home, is also to remember all of the journalists, as well as others in Myanmar, who still remain in danger, many of whom are incarcerated, and many who continue to be killed. Yes, let this be a reminder of of those who are left behind and, and still fighting that fight. Well, Shira, thank you so much for joining me, and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. If you'd like to check out the Out of Eden Walk by my friend Paul Salopek, we'll include a link in our show notes. People of the pod will be taking the week off for Thanksgiving. In the meantime, if you missed last week's episode, tune in for our conversation with two young disruptors of anti-Semitism. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss our return in December with a special Hanukkah episode on how we can shine the light on anti-Semitism. Our Festival of Lights might even include some festive music. 
be sure to tune in. We're grateful for you, our listeners, and we wish you a happy Thanksgiving and Hanukkah Sameach. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 